This episode of the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Productions' three-part miniseries, Devout and Out. The show follows three LGBTQ individuals who have chosen to become or remain leaders in their respective churches. I've watched through this series twice, and it is easily one of the best series I've seen all year. It's smart, thought-provoking, conversation-launching, funny, heartwarming, and is going to show you a side of Canada you have never seen before. You can watch Devout and Out in Canada on the CBC Gem app or elsewhere in the world on YouTube. Enjoy. After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your host today, Becky Shrimpton. Cameron Maitland was supposed to be with me, and unfortunately, he is having technical difficulties with his computer, so he will not be joining us today. Unfortunate because I know how much he really loves this movie. He and I uh, talked about it because we're actually talking about it in the Hollywood Suite TV series that's coming out. It is so great. I love this movie, and I'm really excited to bring on our guest who uh, knows a lot about this this film. Kate Zeman is with us today. Hey, Kate, how you doing? Hello. Well, thanks. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, you are an archivist, you are a librarian, and you have a very intimate knowledge of this film. Well, actually, the first time I saw this movie, I think was in 97 when I was a student, and uh, I ended up watching it again and again over the years uh, in different forums. And uh, in 2012, I had the opportunity to work on an exhibit with Lynn Fernie at the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, subsequently renamed The Archives. Uh, so if anyone's looking for that online, it's A-R-Q-U-I-V-E-S now. But um, we put together an exhibit in 2012 and celebrated the anniversary of the film, brought a lot of people involved in the production together, and uh, tried to, to kind of reinvigorate interest in it as they were looking at re-releasing it or hoping to get it re-released and uh, around the same time I was also writing for a magazine called Queries and so I had a chance to interview uh, both Erlen and Lynn for that article and uh, kind of get the backstory. <laughs> and what a backstory it is. Like this film, we, ha we haven't actually said the title, this is Forbidden Love, The Unashamed Stories of Lesbian Lives from 1992. Oh my God, I love this movie so much. And it is available for free, thank you taxpayers, uh, in <laughs> HD on the National Film Board website. I'm not entirely sure how I stumbled across this. I think I saw it on a list of like best Canadian films in general because it, it takes place a little bit in Toronto, but it's also in Alberta. It's also in BC. It's like, it's kind of, it's in Montreal. And that's partially what's so great about it. It's this incredible kaleidoscopic view of being lesbian and being queer in different areas across Canada and from different ethnic backgrounds as well. Yeah. In 1992. Yes. And I think that was that was very deliberate on the part of the filmmakers, I think. Um, when they were looking for, for subjects for the film, they actually started with a group of about 40 people. Yes. And they had gotten in touch just through word of mouth, like one person would introduce them to someone else who would introduce them to someone else and so on. So, you know, they, they kind of had this 
large group of folks and they ended up doing just audio tape interviews first and then kind of whittling the group down a little from there and then um, approaching the ones they had selected to see if they'd be comfortable, you know, being on film. And, and I think the process took something like four years to put the whole film together. But I think they were really intentional about about wanting to address issues of race and class as much as possible. But at the same time, they do note, I think at the end of the film, there's a, a little postscript that says it's not intended to be like a survey. It's it's really more um, a look at individual people's lives. It, it, it's We can't kind of <laughs> account for every lesbian in Canada over <laughs> that whole time period. But um, but yeah, I think they did try to, to present a, a broader group than uh, perhaps might otherwise have been presented <laughs> had it been someone else who'd made the film. Well, and I think we so often, I mean, um, I remember watching uh, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, and I genuinely love that film. If uh, if anyone needs a, a good overview of second wave feminism, they do a really good job of covering not just white women's struggles, but also you're looking at the lavender menace and you're looking at the black community in terms of uh, feminism. And um, y- there is a very distinct understanding that like, yeah, we tend to put, if you're white, we tend to put you first. That's how this works. <laughs> So yeah. it's it's really nice that even 1992, they were like, oh, hey, I wonder what it's like to be queer in an indigenous community. We should make sure that this voice is heard. Yeah. And I think she's one of the most compelling subjects too. Um, Amanda White, I think is who you're referring to. And, uh, and her story is really interesting. And actually she participated, I think, in a oral history project recently in Vancouver, I think it was. And, and there are transcripts available online uh, if people are interested in looking that up. Sorry, I'm such a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> I have to keep referring people to things. But um, but yeah, she's she's still around. Uh, most of the subjects aren't now, but um, but she is and, uh, and has been interviewed subsequently about her life. So there are other resources out there too. Well, we should be clear. These were a lot of people who are in when they're interviewing them in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Like they're they're not young folks, which is also kind of awesome because you're seeing a perspective. They're no, they're they're talking about um, their lives and what happened to them in hindsight. And especially at a time, this is what it was like, and now it's kind of like this now. And this is how we grew up. This is what we endured. But this is how much fun we had at the same time. This is how we made our mm-hmm. lives joyous. Yeah, and I, I think I read somewhere, or maybe one of the directors told me that only one person out of the initial 40 that they spoke with actually wanted to go back to that time. Like everybody, you know, could recognize the the fun they had and the good parts, but but I think they were all uniformly <laughs> almost happy that things had changed and uh, that they were you know, living in the in the early 90s, which is funny in a way, because I think we've progressed so much more since the early 90s. <laughs> but um, but yeah, things were, were looking up for them at that time. But also something that's so great about this film, and I'm sure you as an archivist and librarian will respect this, holy crap, they did a deep dive on um, archival footage and newspaper articles and like just everything that they pull out to be able to kind of weave into the narrative so you get the idea of, oh, there was actually articles being printed in the paper being like, beware the queer menace. Uh, There's nothing innocent about homosexuals. They're after your children. And it's just like, these are mainstream newspapers that are publishing these fear articles. Yeah, for sure. And it's crazy how how vibrant Canada's, well, even Toronto's tabloid press was at that time because I think people often just think of Toronto and you know mid-century Toronto as this really dry boring place like Montreal's dowdy cousin or something (laughs) but uh but there were at least three tabloids and uh and I I think as awful as those articles are that also kind of provided 
clues and and a bit of a roadmap for people just coming out because they would publish you know the names of bars or kind of neighborhoods where maybe you could meet other queer people and uh, so they had these they sort of performed like a dual function for people that way well, the brilliant thing that they do to sort of bookend this, pardon the pun, of um, how the film is sort of structured on the skeleton is that uh, it's about pulp novels and the importance of the pulp novel to lesbian communities to show this kind of uh, relationship. Of course, they're punished at the end. Uh, most of them, they get into that. But also, it was almost like a gateway or like a little key that you could slide it to your friend who you were interested in and be like, so what do you think about this? <laughs> For sure. And then, and then they sort of build the narrative of this, like you get kind of a little three-act part of this pulp novel that they build where they actually end up giving this couple a happy ending. What did you think about that part that they sort of strung everything within a fictional narrative? Well, I was going to ask you the same thing, actually, because I, I, I've thought different things over the years upon watching it again and again. Like initially, um, I, it didn't work for me. It was a bit, um, a bit too much of a contrast, maybe. And, and I found the fictional scenes dragged a little and, and were a bit, they seemed overly earnest to me. Fair enough, I was 19 and stupid <laughs> when I first saw it. And then over the years, as I watched it, I kind of understood, I think, what they were going for a bit better. And, and, and the, the sort of campy tongue-in-cheek kind of tone of it worked a lot better. And it's so brilliant as a framing device because, I mean, you mentioned the, the archival materials, um, and they did an amazing job looking for those. But the sad truth is that there isn't really that much, you know, to reflect that period in Canadian history. And so... By incorporating the the pulp novels, at least that also gives them more visual material to work with, because otherwise it would, you know, kind of just be a lot of talking heads and then the archival material they were able to find. But with with the covers of the pulps and with those um, little sort of fictional vignettes, that it, I think it makes it a bit more visually interesting as well. Well, I also feel like this is just such a reclamation because when we think of pulps, we, of course, think of Tarantino. We think of Pulp Fiction. And, you know, it doesn't get more feminist than Tarantino, obviously. <laughs> so I just feel like uh, that it, that does become a massive rec reclamation of the genre, right? It just becomes this, like, we're now going to tell these stories in our own way and we're going to tell them openly and largely. I agree with you the first time I watched it. I was like, all right, this sits a little far on the cheese fest for me. And <laughs> I'm not sure. And just because I love the stories and I love the the earnestness of and the, just the candidness of the women that when you see how open and honest they are in the stories they're telling um, and then you flip into fictional like she was a dame sitting at a table <laughs> uh, sort of land and that tends to just kind of pull you out and you're like no no bring me back to the lady that wanted to go to Greenwich Village to go visit the lesbians <laughs> like she's so great oh I love her I love her too oh <laughs> well I uh, I looked at some of the reviews of the time, like when it was released, and and people seemed very evenly split on the question of you know whether the the fictional vignettes were successful or not. It was really interesting. Some people thought that they dragged on and and distracted too much from the actual interviews, and other folks thought the interviews dragged on a little, and that the vignettes were the strongest part. So <laughs> no, you can't please everybody, I guess. But uh, I, I like them now. Now you're into it. How many times have you watched this movie? Oh, man. Uh, probably about six or seven. And it was really difficult for a long time to find it because the Toronto Public Library had like one VHS copy. <laughs> and in the early days of YouTube, there were some really crappy 
little segments online that you could watch. Um, so every once in a while I would, or, you know, if I'd introduced it to somebody else, I'd have to give them this kind of like guide to how to find it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I guess oh, probably I've seen it two or three times since the re-release. I, I just love it. And I, I actually credit it with, with kind of instigating my, my interest in, in um, queer archives and in AV archives particularly because I just had never seen anything like it before it came out. Did <laughs> so, you use this to pick people up? Did you like slide them a coffee and go, <laughs> what do you think about this? <laughs> oh, I should have. <laughs> I'm not sure that that would be too uh, too successful for most people actually, <laughs> Maybe just other librarians and archivists. <laughs> well, something we're uh, we're actually sponsored by, uh, as people will have listened to at the beginning of this, we are sponsored by Archipelago Productions' uh, Devout and Out, which is about um, <laughs> queer uh, queer priests and people who are working within religion, but they are out. And uh, one of the things I love so much about that show is that it, yeah, it shows the difficult struggles people have had. I mean, there's someone who has gone through conversion therapy, and that's a freaking nightmare. But you also see how they've built a life and how much joy they now have having found what they truly want to do and connecting with people the way they need to and I feel like this film hits the same chord because you can so often watch things about queer people about uh, minorities where it's like oh this life is so hard and terrible things keep happening why would you come out at all why would you even try to live this kind of life and it's because there's good parts there's very Mm -hmm. good parts and I think this film does a really great job of being like this is the balance of like oh my god suddenly a light bulb went off and it's like oh there's nothing wrong with me I just like women more than men and that's I was delighted (laughs) (laughs) and you're like yes that's exactly that's exactly the point and the humanization of that and the the validation of the experience of coming out you actually see these stories of it was horrible but it was worth it This episode of the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast is brought to you by Archipelago Productions. For over 15 years, the team at Archipelago have been making groundbreaking and award-winning films, television, and corporate video. For brands like Google, Netflix, Etsy, Time Magazine, and the University of Toronto. Visit archipelagoproductions.ca to find out how they can help you elevate and execute your next video project. And, and they're also charming too. Yeah. Like just every one of them is, they're so funny and charming. And, and it is, I wonder sometimes if people watch the film and think that they're romanticizing a, a really objectively terrible <laughs> time in history. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not, it can't be all bad all the time, right? Like, I, I, I really go back and forth on that question of, of the romanticization, because having watched it, you know, at different points in my own life, I've often thought, oh, if I had a time machine, you know, I'd love to go to the Continental Park. But, <laughs> uh, but then I remember what it would actually be like and, and sort of check myself. After I watched this, actually, I took my friend to the King Edward because I was yeah. like, did you know, because any who just happens to be gay, but he's also my one of my best eating, drinking friends. And I was <laughs> like, did you know this is actually, this used to be like a place where women and men would beard for each other and then you know you'd just go have sex in the bathroom that's what you do and he was like no and I was like yeah do you want to tell the waiter and he was like no <laughs> and the Letros was right across the street yes. um the other bar which I think they mentioned in the film they should have plaques outside they really should <laughs> they're really like integral parts of Toronto square <laughs> history but 
But I also feel like in terms of the romanticization, they also don't shy away from the danger of things. Like they do have that moment where they discuss, you know, the police officers doing terrible things to women and and uh, going after people. And and you do get those elements of like, yeah, this was not all roses. My favorite is, is the school teacher who has like the nine inch bread knife that she carries <laughs> with them that she has no idea how to use. It's just there as like a threat. Um, <laughs> but it's the fact that she knew she had to have that on her because she was presenting as Butch, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. what you are. And when you're that visible, I mean, they talked about one woman was talking about how she fell in love with uh, a Butch Dyke, her words, um, who had tattoos up to her elbows. I'm like, can you imagine the balls you would have to have to have tattoos up to your elbows and be a woman in the early 60s? Like that's just mind boggling to me. It is. It's yeah, it's hard to imagine. And I think a lot of people were, were so circumscribed in the sorts of jobs they could do, yeah. you know, for that reason as well. Um, I read recently that that a lot of people were car jockeys, like driving cars around for rental companies, like really? returning cars and and parking cars, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's a it's a funny little niche, but um, but I think a lot of the folks that hung out in the Continental and who were mentioned in the film, um, that's what they did. <laughs> huh. Well, I guess that makes sense, right? Because you get uh, it would be good pay. You'd get you could drink on the job. It'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What could go wrong? Exactly. Well, I mean, it's also incredible how alcoholism is really a big part of this film as well. Like drinking, because bars has always been the thing because it's adults gathering. It's the same as gay bars. It's it's where you go. It's illicit. You know, there's always that undertone that uh, inhibitions are out the window. You just go, right? Yeah. Yeah. As a a kind of focal point for the community, I think uh, the bars really served a purpose. And, And over the last 20 years, of course, they've been kind of dying out in in every city and there's always a lot of hand-wringing about that well from me as well (laughs) (laughs) lamenting this loss of like a a kind of dedicated space but but yeah the dark side of that is that you know so many people have then struggled with addictions and drinking problems and maybe maybe it's time to to move beyond you know (laughs) the bars the the focal point of our scene well Um, and as someone who is straight let me tell you that we have mostly usurped the idea of the gay bar at this point as just being a fun night out right (laughs) a lot of bachelorette parties (laughs) exactly (laughs) for which i duly apologize on behalf of my people (laughs) it's okay <laughs> um, I have a question for you, if that's okay. I'm so curious when people watch this movie, like, how, does it resonate as Canadian to you, or does it feel like it could have been made, or you know, could it could be documenting any scene in North America? Um, I think you're seeing a bit of North America in general. I think it's Canadian in the fact that, number one, we're actually talking about Indigenous culture. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that it's Canadian in the fact that there is an openness and a will and a playfulness that you see in Canadian stuff and a, and a self-deprecation you see in Canadian stuff you would not see in American stuff. And I feel like if you watch an American one, uh, an American version of this, there would be, and even the way it was created, it would be a lot more fearful. There would be a lot more challenging stories that may make you want to turn away I don't know if you'd have the same level of joy and playfulness I think you're right I think it's something about the tone yeah because yeah. a few of the reviews that I've read just recently trying to kind of get a sense of how it was received in 92 were American and they just they didn't mention the fact that it was a Canadian film at all they just kept referencing um, you know 
pre-Stonewall era lesbians. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not us. Good try, though. That's not us. But I don't know if that was just to appeal to the, to the readers who maybe wouldn't be interested in something Canadian. I don't know. It was peculiar. But but it does really feel Canadian to me when I watch it. And not just the accents and the and the references to particular places. But yeah, there's something in the in the humor, I think, and the tone that that just doesn't feel American. <laughs> oh, it's the self-deprecation and the off-the-cuffness and the the fact that they're they're aware there there's a silliness to a lot of what they were doing. And you know, especially especially the one we talked about earlier, who went off to Greenwich Village to see the lesbians. You know, she's just <laughs> so aware that she's like, well, we thought this is what you did, so you dressed up and you dressed the part and you went. And there's something so Canadian about that, in that like, yeah, we we want to be seen as something. We want to try so hard, and we just it, we're tryhards. That's just what we do. Yeah. So, and you see that in this. For sure, yeah. yeah. Now, the other reason why it's definitely Canadian is that there's no way in hell there would be a government body that was producing this film in 1992 <laughs> in the States. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Um, but I do have to ask, how much do you know about Studio D that produced this film out of the NFB? I don't know that much. I just know that it died around 97. Thank you, John um, Bertan. Yep. <laughs> yeah, a uh, $20 million funding cut, I think I remember. And, That's correct. Um, and that I think this was their their most successful film financially. Uh, yes, from what I've heard. Yes, yes. But I I, uh, I can't say I know too much more than that. <laughs> All right, please allow me to fill you in just briefly please. as well as our listeners as, as we go along. So it was established in 1974. Kathleen Shannon was the main person who was setting everything up, and uh, the Studio D was created predominantly to make films by women for women. And so this unfortunately tended to translate into by middle age white women middle class for middle age white women middle class so people like Alanis uh, Abamsawin and Jennifer Hodge da Silva worked outside of the Studio D system um, hmm. however that and also same with um, Quebecois filmmakers as well female filmmakers tended to stay in the Quebecois they didn't really come into um, Studio D uh, era so we're very much dealing with a specific bubble but the, what I love is there's this great quote from Kathleen Shannon talking about why this kind of a film uh, unit was important. She says, a few years ago, I could have predicted what would happen if you sent a cameraman to take some shots of a Montreal street. His footage would show mainly white men between the ages of 18 and 50. There'd be a few pretty girls, but none over 30, unless it was somebody quite ethnic, like a 90-year-old with lots of wrinkles, so people could exclaim what a wonderful face she had. There wouldn't be a lot of female heads, but there would be other parts of their bodies. Women, <laughs> yeah, women don't show women like that. Women tend to focus on heads and show a person as a whole human being. Wow. I know, and I was like, that's powerful and kind of fascinating. <laughs> so she stayed, if you will, in power until um, the 80s, at which point it flipped over to someone new who wanted to show. I'm sorry, I've got the, this written down, but I don't have her name directly in front of me. But uh, yeah, it flipped over to somebody new who uh, was like, we need to get more diversity in here. We've got to see more things and more colors. And so this became the flagship, uh, the flagship of the new Studio D, um, this film. And so they were like, yes, of course, now we make LGBTQ films and this one was like the we're going to make this and it's going to be a whole new voice. Wow. And now I know. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know. Well, yeah, I do remember hearing that there hadn't been any um, sort of specifically queer NFB films at all. And I guess particularly within Studio D before this that I think there'd been one about feminism that sort of uh, briefly dealt with lesbians but what that was not the focus of the of the film itself so um so yeah i guess this was 
the first and and definitely most prominent definitely. <laughs> it seemed to do pretty well internationally oh, as well definitely well, there's a couple more i looked up because I, I spend a lot of time on the nfb because you know this is what i do um, <laughs> and there's another one that i really love called uh, toward intimacy which is this have you are you familiar with this one no it's a, a sex positive look at women with disabilities and um there it's different people with different disabilities and sort of how they've found love and talking about sex and sexuality uh, and there's one woman who's deaf who is also gay and uh, her kind of navigating that world as she's deaf was really fascinating. So that one's totally worth your time. Again, available for free on the NFB. Excellent. Uh, um, and there's another one called uh, When Love is Gay, which is a variety of gay men discussing what sort of stereotypes they've had to deal with um, coming out with their families, expressing themselves in public, uh, and also just the idea of like what masculinity is when you are gay. And that one's really interesting, too. It is really hard to imagine these being produced anywhere else. (laughs) It's not happening. And all I can think of is I'm like, I make this podcast to be like, hey, watch these movies. These are great. And I'm sure there's someone who will be like, our tax dollars paid for this. And I'm like, yes, and it probably saved some lives. Just so you know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, I think the only negative review I saw or negative comment at all that I uh, had read from the early 90s regarding Forbidden Love was um, a conservative MP from Alberta. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, ranting about how taxpayer money was used to produce this filth. But uh, but that was it. it. I honestly thought that it would be a harder sell for people <laughs> like to, to reach a, a mainstream audience, but it, it really doesn't seem to have been. And I guess it was, you know, the film was riding this wave of really positive criticism but uh, but it i think it aired on cbc as well in 93 like nationwide um it aired in the uk on tv and and it just seems like everybody was able to to appreciate these people's stories and and their lives and and it's it's pretty rare i think yeah. that that a film like this does didn't meet or wouldn't meet you know a backlash somewhere but uh you would think like especially if you're playing in the uk like is it because then my question is is it because they're women and not men if this was gay men telling the same stories as opposed to women would this have been as okay probably not probably not now and definitely not in 92 yeah i I think you're probably right there yeah um and I, i mean maybe maybe part of the the issue here too is that nobody had heard these stories before because this was not, you know, and still isn't really a well-documented time in Canadian history or really (laughs) anybody's history. Uh, So maybe the novelty of it kind of helped, helped people just take it at face value. I don't know, but, um, but yeah. Because if this was about gay men, would, would this have been as popular or would it be even more popular now and getting the same level of attention that, say, Paris is burning or the Queen's has gotten? Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I At the time, of course, like the early 90s was the, the sort of dawn of the new queer cinema. But, but all of those films were so different, like in terms of their influences and, and narrative structure, like a, a documentary like this, I, I don't think would have really been received as part of that I mean I wouldn't call it canon but uh, you know as part of that like trend um yeah it would have it would have been an interesting one with men I've never considered what what that would have looked like 
Yeah. It, it, I feel like this film is just so so kind of perfect as it is. It's so <laughs> it's perfect. Hard no, to no, imagine don't, any other way. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't touch this to save its life. I love this so much. <laughs> I called my mother up and I was like, you need to see this. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> so I just feel like it's one of those films where it's like, if you know someone who you're like, this would even vaguely be up their alley, if they just like storytelling or just like the way things used to be or, and especially because it takes place across all of Canada, it's like, oh, that's where that used to be like, and this is where that was. And there's something so beautifully, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, not exotic, but like dangerous about, oh, that used to be in this neighborhood, which is now a set of condos, right? <laughs> yes. Well, actually, the Continental is now a Starbucks of in course. Toronto. So, <laughs> yeah. Surprise. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, we are at favorite moments now. What's your favorite moments of this? Oh, I think my favorite moment might be right at the very, very end where I think it's Lois and I can't remember the other lady's name are joking about, you know, now that the film's over, are they are they going to be met with people wielding baseball bats? Outside? <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually very dark humor. But and then the other one says, yeah, just like in the old days. And and I think that that really captures that sort of humor as resistance that that underpins the whole film and and there's just so much going on at once in that short little scene and my other favorite moment which is one that I didn't even notice until maybe my fifth or sixth viewing (laughs) was um uh, I think it's Carol Richie McIntosh is talking about one incident that had happened someone drove a a motorcycle into the bar yes do you remember that it's a very brief little moment but um but I'm it's kind of prompted me to dig a little deeper and see if I can figure out who this person was and like what the circumstances of the story were, because uh, there is an oral history project that has um, covered a lot of the same ground and, and some of the same folks were interviewed there. And I, I think a reference is made to that person there as well. I think they called her Wild Bill. And so <laughs> I, Wild Bill has kind of inspired me to do a little more research and see if I can find out more about her. But uh, there are so many favorite moments, but those are just the kind of two that stand out to me uh, now. Oh, it's so perfect. My favorite is Nairobi. I love Ni- Nairobi from Montreal so much. Oh, yes. She's yes. so <laughs> phenomenal. And when she talks about how to pick up a woman in a gay bar, um, and she's like, you send them over a drink. And then you, the flower woman comes in, and you send them over a rose. <laughs> and the first time she walks into uh, Festa Bebe, the baby face bar in Montreal, and she goes by, I, I, what is the English word? I, I freaked out. I freaked out. There's yeah. women, women, women. And you're like, you had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> she was a singer sorry, and a dancer, right? Like, that's just what she yeah. did. So you're like, oh, you had a great time. And the fact that the men who she was touring with kept getting pissed at her, she kept picking up all the chicks. <laughs> yes. And the pictures of those men and their stashes were just <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> These, like, flowing 70s stashes. Um, she was actually a professional soccer player in Costa Rica what? before she came to Canada. Yes. God damn. Yeah. I love uh, these people. These people are so interesting every one of them is just fascinating i just don't know how you would whittle down said they started with like 40 people how would you whittle down these stories for the edit because there's just so many good ones yeah i don't know i can't even imagine who ended up on the cutting room floor like i guess some folks weren't interested in in being filmed so that would be sort of a natural filter but then out of everybody else yeah how did you pick nine more like it it's it would have been a very difficult task (laughs) 
Oh, 100%, because they're just so great. Um, oh, man. Well, thank you so much for bringing this, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me ramble on about it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a great film. It's so good, and hopefully our listeners will love it as well. Um, can people follow your work anywhere? You are published, I assume? Uh, I am. I, I, I am a very lazy Twitter user, so... <laughs> <laughs> I would point people, actually, I think the most relevant thing I've done recently is uh, a piece for um, a book called Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer, which was published a couple of years ago by Coach House. And um, there's a really great section in that book about um, the same time period in Canada, queer history, or well, in Toronto specifically. And uh, and I do have a piece in there, but there's a lot of stuff about the tabloids and the bars that that I think people would enjoy if they loved forbidden love. <laughs> so where do I, get I would this book? point people I, to that. I need this. Where did I, where do I get this from? Any bookstore, any library. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> done and done. All right. And then as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters at Le Shrimpton. That's the masculine Le Shrimpton over there. Uh, Cameron Maitland, my uh, erstwhile co-host, is uh, at Camfess on Twitter and on Instagram and at iCram on Instagram as well, where you can hear his thoughts on uh, Forbidden Love, the unashamed stories of lesbian lives. Uh, we, of course, have a Patreon. So if you think the show is worth some money, send it over our way. We would love to have it. It helps us keep going and pay for, you know, all of the editing and bringing on guests and uh, hosting because none of this stuff is free. But we love presenting this show to you. I think that's just about everything. Kate, do you want to go get a moose head? (laughs) Only if it's at the Continental. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.